Hi, I'm Simone W. Johnson-Smith, and welcome to the Immigrant Experience in America. Are you a professional new to the United States and struggling to monetize the expertise you brought across the seas? Are you feeling misunderstood and out of touch because you're struggling to understand the unstated rules of the American culture? Each week, we'll take an in-depth look at the positive contributions immigrants are making to the American culture, marketplace, and life. Our intention is to serve as a bridge from your culture to the American culture, giving you a roadmap of tools and the language to understand the unstated rules of the American culture. Let's get started. Hello, listeners, and thank you for joining us again on another episode of The Immigrant Experience in America, where we amplify and humanize the experiences of immigrants in the United States. We are available on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Be sure to subscribe so that you do not miss an episode. Today we have for you Yu Ying Chen Win, and uh, we're happy to have her here on the broadcast. Welcome, Yu Ying. Thank you so much for having me. Do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? Um, yeah, so uh, my name is Yu Ying. So I'm Chinese American immigrant. I came to the U.S. When I was just 10 years old, I didn't speak a word of English, and, um, and I became a citizen in my 20s. I'm currently a product executive in the ed tech industry, so that's education technology. Okay, very good. Um, and so did your, you, you came over with your parents, or were they here already? Um, so my, we came separately. My father came in 1980 out of China as one of the very first publicly funded graduate students out of China when they first opened that Iron Curtain. And then my mother was allowed out in 1984 because my dad was really sick and that was the only reason they let her out, but they kept me separate. Um, I came in 1986. So uh, we were kind of in stages. Wow. Wow. So it's, it's interesting to hear the words that you're using, that you were allowed out and um, that, you know, your mom wasn't able to freely visit your father and, and then you had to stay as well. Um, can you give our listeners a little bit of perspective as to what was going on historically with China at the time? Yeah. So it was definitely uh, the Iron Curtain was uh, in effect, um, in terms of between China and the Western world is fairly blocked off. 1980 was when they very first time they experimented um, and allowed students out. Um, but through, I think they closed it again through 1984. And um, my mother was only allowed it because my, my dad was sick enough that he was in the hospital. He, so during that time, actually, my father's um, mother, my grandmother had passed away, but even with that, they didn't allow him back. He had to focus on his studies. And so it was very much uh, controlled his um, even being allowed out his graduate studies. Um, it was really until only 1986, I was even allowed to visit. Wow. So, so you didn't see your father for six years. Is that, that right? And your mom didn't see him for four years. Yeah, so I 
He left when I was four. I had really no early memories of my father. It was kind of me and mom against the world was what I remembered. And then when my mom, when they weren't allowed to take me, um, she sent me to stay with my aunt. So I uh, was without my mom for two years, which um, I think she had huge guilt about. I lived with my cousin, so I thought it was great. <laughs> but I think it's harder for 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 the mother to be away from her only child when she was like only eight so right now I can't imagine oh my goodness and so he was even restricted as a student not being able to was this in agreement with the United States or was it China that simply said you're out to study you stay and study and was he allowed to return after his studies or once he left that was it he should stay in the United States so uh, he was supposed to return um, for by when he was ending his study. So he went out for his PhD. Um, so that's usually somewhere between four to six years, uh, the original plan. So that was all controlled by China. It was not anything limited by the United States. Um, by the time he graduated, I th things were a lot more different. So he uh, continued with his postdoc and uh, and eventually got his green card and, and all of that. So uh, things did change by the time he finished his study, but um, his graduate uh, experience was very controlled. Right, I can imagine, and being separated from family for that long. Did he have anyone here? Was he here by himself? Yeah, he was here by himself. I think um, the early stories his, he tells in 1980 when he came and he was dropped in, into the middle of Texas, Houston, Texas. Um, and his experience was that really no one here knew uh, even where China was on the map. They certainly didn't recognize him as being Chinese. Um, wow. His story of his driver license, he, it took him 10 tries and he just couldn't pass. And he didn't understand why. On his last one, his um, driving test instructor just turned to him and asked, and he's like, he said, um, are you Vietnamese? And my father goes, uh, no, I'm not Vietnamese. I'm Chinese. And and he passes driver's test. And so what he kind of figured out later was um, at that time, of course, the driving instructor was a Vietnam vet, and they were more familiar with that. And there certainly wasn't um, great feeling towards Vietnam uh, immigrants at that point. But uh, they really had no experience with Chinese immigrants when he first came. So there's some very interesting stories from their early days here. Right. No, I can imagine. Wow. Um, and how are your parents doing? Um, if you don't mind me asking, how are they doing today? They're great. Um, my mom retired. So she... Uh, actually, because of the Cultural Revolution, she never got her college degree in China. Um, but she she was really a determined lady. She got her college degree at the University of Texas at age 40. So um, then she ended up being in IT, worked for the state government until she retired. So she's happily retired. She dances as a hobby and uh, she comes over and hangs out with the grandkids every week. <laughs> um, yeah, my dad, uh, eventually he's an academic, he's a retired professor. So um, right, he's also retired now. He mostly spends his time um, making not so much YouTube videos, but videos for, for <laughs> audiences on economics. And that's kind of his, 
his thing because he's not a full professor anymore. So he just makes videos. Right, right. A hobby, hobby. Okay. And ha- yeah. have they been back to China since the 80s? And, and how was that if they did? Oh, they have, actually. So um, eventually my father uh, was also a professor in Chinese universities and uh, when the attitudes were a lot more open. So he would spend half a year in China teaching and half a year back in the US. So they actually travel quite frequently and uh, my mother's whole family is there and uh, they go quite often. Um, Yeah, so things are a lot more open now and they have kind of regular uh, trips. Okay, good, good, good. Well, thankful for that. <laughs> 40 years, right? Um, things are um, much, yeah. much more open. Um, so what was your American dream at the time? I know you came at 10. What was that ex- first experience like in the United States, if you can remember, at 10 years old and then growing up to be a teenager and considering college? What was that like? Um. So I came right at the end of fifth grade and I didn't speak any English. So I started an ESL um, and I loved my ESL teacher. I didn't understand much English at the, uh, in the beginning, but I had uh, another classmate who also speak um, Chinese. So I didn't feel lonely. I had kind of like my one friend that I hung out with and the, and the ESL teacher pretty much made everything just uh, very welcoming until I spoke enough English, which I think it took about six months before I went into regular class. Um, I had a great time in school, uh, even though I couldn't communicate a lot. It was, um, I learned to kind of, you know, kickstart the swing on my own from a kid just showing me, and I had never done that. I'd never seen a pogo stick. I'm like, what? <laughs> you have <laughs> in class, I'm like, what is this? There was... Uh, for me, everything was just kind of fun and uh, new. Um, my grades were terrible for two or three years, but um, I think it mattered less in elementary school as we were going through. So I actually had a great time um, kind of slowly getting into the hang of things with school. By the time I got to high school, everything was uh, normalized. And I think the big thing for us has always been just getting a good education. Um, I didn't have too much trouble in school, so uh, I don't think my parents paid a lot of attention to what I was doing, and I kind of just applied for schools on my own, and I wanted to go to Boston. I really wanted to be away from home. That was uh, Texas at the time, as far as I could go, somewhere new and exciting, um, and I got in, So, and that was, it was, uh, I got into MIT to everyone's surprise, because no one, um, no one really thought I was particularly smart I wasn't uh, I didn't have the the best grades Uh, I always goofed off um, so no one uh, paid too much attention until I got into MIT to everyone's surprise so that was kind of the (laughs) yeah that was a that was a huge hit at at home wow so I mean what changed you were goofing off you you know and then you just thought this was the moment to be serious about school or were you really interested in getting into college or what, um, what changed? I think, yeah, I think the thing for me is because I was kind of left alone on my own, I, I learned a lot of stuff on my own. 
right? So I was curious about a lot of different things. And I took a lot of random college courses. I took uh, different language courses. I took like a physics computer science intensive. Um, I took flamenco. Um, and it turns out when you apply to college, uh, all your explorations and things you're, uh, you're interested in actually uh, really adds up to a great um, an application. I was good at telling stories on my essays. And, and I had decent SAT scores. My essay, I, I had a perfect math. So I was doing okay when it came to standardized testing. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Um, so at the time, did you have an idea what you wanted to do, what, you know, as you grow up or you've kind of figured it out? Is there an American dream that you were chasing? My, the dream I chased was always kind of um, just being happy, having a great family, a house. Um, I wanted to have pets and I wanted to have a yard that I can decorate. Um, school was kind of just, it was always assumed uh, kind of the good school and a uh, good job to go along with that. But I really wanted the, the house with the dog. <laughs> oh, and MIT was part of the, you know, you'll be able to afford and do what you want, right? Did you have yeah. that, that, that level yeah. of thinking I, at I that was, age? Yeah, it was, I, yeah, I was very practical. Um, uh, I was not very specifically into computers at the time, um, but I was accepted at MIT and I was kind of like, okay, what are they really good at? And that seems like the job prospects are pretty good. Uh, I'll major in that. <laughs> Right, right. Okay. Were there any particular challenges or opportunities um, along your path, you know, pursuing school? Sounded like, you know, um, you were quiet and, you know, just did what you needed to do, stayed out of trouble, and then got into school. Um, Any challenges or opportunities? Um, So school was actually quite hard. uh, luckily for financial aid, I will say that um, if there wasn't the the big financial aid package, I would have never made it through. Um, I worked the whole time as well, uh, and my school had a special housing for the financially needy where the rent was um, probably half what it normally would be, and you could, um, if you cooked meals for the entire house once a week, then you could get like another $100 off a month. No. Um, yeah, so right. financial that was huge. Like my my monthly rent was coming down to like uh, two hundred and fifty dollars a month. Even back then, that was that made a huge huge difference. Um, but I still worked part time from freshman uh, all the way through until I could get an RA and NTA. And uh, school was much much harder uh, than high school. So I I really buckle down um just spent hours and hours in the in the dorm room in the computer lab and in everything it's probably one of the hardest times i i worked there was definitely a period where i wasn't sure if i was gonna make it it is it is highly rigorous there um but uh when i finally got uh kind of my gpa high enough to get uh, a TA, I was like, mm, maybe I, I can make it. And then um, I got my GPA then also high enough to get into the master's program. 
I was like, okay, that that paid off all those hours. Right, yeah. right. You you had a little story um, I found a bit funny about the reason you chose um, that part of the country to go to school. Do you mind sharing? <laughs> well um uh at uh let's see as i was finishing high school i fell in love with my very first boyfriend who was um he was actually a music major Uh, he was one year ahead of me and he got into new england conservatory which is also located in boston so All I knew was that I wanted to get to Boston so I can be with him. (laughs) No matter matter what. And I actually, I really didn't uh, research college. I didn't understand that MIT and Harvard are very competitive and very difficult to get into. And a lot of people are intimidated to even apply. All I knew was those are two schools I've heard of that's in Boston. And that's where I need to go. And that's where I apply. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) So. Well, I mean, you had to have been doing decently well for them to consider your application and you got in, right? So, um, but I guess you weren't necessarily aware of some of the fears that other people might have had at the time. Yeah, I do think sometimes you get intimidated or maybe you feel like you're good and not good enough for certain things if you find out about how great they are ranked or uh, how high their standards are. I probably had the advantage where I really didn't have that intimidation because I wasn't aware. So I just, you know, I put in all my stories about things I believed in, all the random classes I took. And, you know, uh, I think the dream I had at the time when I was telling them that I wanted to combine um, computer science and dancing because that's my other passion. Uh, somehow in my career and they found that vastly interesting and yeah so wow and you mentioned that your mom is into dancing too is there is this something you guys picked up on this side of the on the western side in the United States or is this something in China where dance is just a thing how, how did this come culturally um so for my for my mom it's from this side because when she was growing up she was uh, one of seven seven kids, very, very poor and uh, didn't have money and only one child got to dance and it wasn't her. And so she always wanted to, but she never had that chance. Um, I grew up kind of with the dance classes uh, in China because you, uh, you can pick something always for your extracurricular and I just always danced around and I was, um, so my mom let me in as first possible. But in college, I got into ballroom dancing. And when my mom saw that, she was like, wait, this is something I can do as, a, as an adult. So she actually picked up ballroom dancing after seeing me pick it up in college. And uh, she started that as well. She's actually kept dancing longer than I have in competitive ballroom. I got her, talked her into competition and she's still doing it. She's, she's over 70. She's still competing. And we did our last competition in Las Vegas together and we both got third place. And it's, it's great to be able to share that uh, together right now. Oh, amazing. At her age too, I've seen a few older women who do it and it keeps them so happy at that stage of life, you know? 
Yeah. And her, she's much, you know, much more youthful, healthy. I mean, she's been through cancer, um, but this, you know, brought her back and you can see the difference kind of in health between her and her sisters. But yeah, it's um, life-saving really for her. Yes, yes, yes. Very good. Um, I think you um, may have addressed this a bit earlier, but were there any anything about the U.S. culture um, that you found challenging or surprising, uh, shocking to you, um, you know, coming from China, completely different environment? Anything that you remember? I know you were quite young, but as you grew up, any particular area that you thought, oh, this is just really weird or, you know, why do we do this here? Yeah. Um, so I have a, a, a early fun story. My first encounter with Halloween. Um, I had just uh, arrived and, and uh, my father explained uh, the tradition to me on Halloween of trick-or-treating. Now, uh, dressing up was not a problem. I, you know, young girl, you dress up randomly all the time. I put on like extra skirts and scarves and, you know, whatever I thought would be fun to do. And then he explained that you have to knock on the doors of strangers and ask them for candy. And I was just shocked. I, it felt like my father told me that I should go beg for money. Like that's, that was like my association with it. I was like, what? You can't just go knock on a stranger's door and ask them for something like what? And I had such a hard time with that, but he was like, he was insistent that I try it. He was like, no, just go do one. You need to go do one. You need to try it. And that first year that I did that one, I felt so, I didn't understand it at all. Um, And then later on, as I got candy, I'm like, oh, wait, this is, they just give you free candy? Um, Yeah, so uh, since then, Halloween uh, trick-or-treating has become one of my most favorite uh, traditions, but some of these uh, holidays, when you first come in contact with them, you, you the reaction like, wait, what? What? Why is this? this makes no sense to me. Right. Um, we also lived at the time uh, in uh, international student housing for the University of Texas. And the years after, there was a lot of doors we knocked on where they were, you know, freshly to the U.S. And there's kids knocking on their door all night asking for things and they have no idea what it's about. And uh, we would explain what Halloween and trick-or-treating was. And after they understood, we, you know, they try to give us something and we had like green beans or a banana or just whatever (laughs) (laughs) yeah so we it was it was fun we we found those uh, highly entertaining um the ones where we had to explain and then just to see what they came back with because every now and then they would give us a dollar and we we were just kind of hoping for this (laughs) (laughs) right um do you do you um did you were your parents particularly like strict about just the Chinese culture, we're living in the United States, but making sure that you remained or you kept that part of your roots. Um, was that an issue growing up or they kind of just gave you the freedom that now you're in a new place where you can do as you wish? Oh, no, we uh, <laughs> we were very strict about that for um, for about a year or two. I had 
to work on my own, the, the, the Chinese school books. I think they gave up after about a year of that, but then I had to read all the classics, um, the Tri-Kingdom, the Red Lantern, um, the, um, all the poetry. And then my sister, so my sister is actually born in the United States. Um, I was born under the only child policy in China, but my sister was born here 13 years younger. Um, and in order for my sister to learn Chinese, my mom and three other moms in, uh, in Austin actually went and started a Chinese school. So their kids that were born here or came very young can learn Chinese and keep that going. So my sister growing up never had a free Sunday because she was always in Chinese school. Uh, luckily, I went through fifth grade in China and uh, I could keep my Chinese just by reading as long as I kept uh, reading all my classics. So yeah, it was very important that we knew the language, um, then we can kind of understand and read and, uh, and learn about the changes that were happening there. Right, right. Very good. Very good. Do you have any advice that we, you'd like to share to new residents, new immigrants about how to adjust to the new culture or how to become successful contributing residents to the United States? Um, yeah, so I mean, two things I one, I do think language is super important in terms of uh, practicing kind of your English or finding uh, really great people that you can practice with. Um, the, the reality is people do judge you based on uh, how you speak. And I, and I saw that not only here in the US, I also went back to China, uh, worked um, as well. And a lot of uh, there was, you can see that quite clearly that people make assumptions based on how you speak. So putting that time in, I know it sounds kind of uh, not the best sometimes, but uh, the more fluent you are, the, the better your messages and your knowledge and your smarts will come through. Um, and the other one is really kind of, you know, connect with uh others with your similar background and if they have been here longer, because they're going to be the ones that help you understand certain new culture traditions or pop culture or memes and jokes. You kind of rely on the ones who are a couple of years ahead of you to explain. And you can, that's, and those are the ones you can ask, like, what does this mean? Why do they keep saying that to me? Nice. Yeah. So that's, we really kind of, my parents were very sociable. So we kind of kept that community um, of Chinese Americans in Austin in the early days. So everybody knew coming in, knew my parents. They were considered kind of the, one of the original sets and they really helped them. That part I do think is really, really key to connect into that uh, community for support. Right, right, very, very good advice. We have a new segment uh, as part of the show called Faux Pas. I mm -hmm. wonder if you had any one thing that you would encourage new new immigrants to stay clear of um you know just to foster better rapport with people or any one recommendation that you would say do this this will help things become more easy for you more be more peaceful and you know help you on your journey um i think one of the ones so uh this one is very specific to kind of Chinese immigrants because of the difference in language. Um, 
I see this still with my my parents who've been here 30, 40 years. So uh, the the gender the gender pronouncer she and he in, in Chinese when you speak it is exactly the same. So they have they very regularly miss uh, misuse when they're speaking English the he or the she. Um, and the thing is, right now, especially with uh, kind of the sensitivity around being uh, identifying kind of on the gender side as people's preferences, that is really key to get accurate. So you're not kind of inadvertently um, causing kind of um, people to be uncomfortable because you've used the wrong one. That's that's one that's very specific language i noticed it doesn't matter how long you've been here kind of chinese americans still struggle with it because our our reference to, to gender to he and she in, in the language is exactly the same that's one of those things i try to tell them i might just slow down because <laughs> right now that is really sensitive and you need to make sure you're speaking accurately just slow down okay okay that's a good one um, yeah, it's very salient for this period that we're going through right now with um, the LGBTQ, I, 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 I may get that incorrectly, QI um, mm-hmm. community, and I see a lot of people on LinkedIn and elsewhere putting out there how they would prefer to be referred to, right? She, her, or he, him, and so forth. Yeah, yeah, and it's res- very, res- you know, respectful to to address them as they prefer. I just know that certain languages when you come from where the gender doesn't make a difference, then you need to kind of slow yourself down to make sure you don't make that mistake and make others feel uncomfortable. Right, right, right. And we deal with so many different cultures as well. Um, mm-hmm. So, right, language and communication are, are, are so important too and very important topics. Yeah, I was in language learning for seven years, so I also I'm I kind of really deep dived into language and how that affects um, people's perceptions and assumptions and how you learn and what native language you come from, what are the blocks, and so <laughs> I do tend to focus on that because of my profession as well. Right, right, very good. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story, Yu Ying. Well, thank you for having me. This is super fun. And I've listened to your other podcast and it's so great to hear all the different stories. Awesome. Awesome. Um, we will be posting your story in March as in celebration of Women's History Month. We're mm-hmm. highlighting all women immigrants. And so you will be one of the many that will be shared in the month of March. Cool. Thank you. It's amazing to hear the different experiences from the different part of the world, you know, and how they interpret uh, things yeah. here in the United States. It's quite interesting. Yeah, especially if they've gone through kind of like major political shifts, some of their, because my parents' stories I find much more interesting than, than mine, it's just because it's so different. Right, the world before the curtain, you said, as you mentioned earlier. Yep, for the Iron Curtain. Right, right. Awesome. Well, we appreciate your time and uh, we wish you all the very best. Thank you so much. You have a really, really great uh, podcast that you're doing here. Thank you so much. I appreciate the support. Anytime. Take care. You too. Bye-bye.
tune in next week for another episode of The Immigrant Experience in America. As this is a new podcast, we welcome any and all support. If you have not done so already, subscribe on the Apple Podcast app, Google Podcast app, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also support us by completing a five-star rating and review and sharing our podcast with your friends, family, and circle of influence.